0: Today's reading is from Ephesians 1, and we are starting at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way.
1: Well, good morning again, and happy Easter. It's great to be with you if you're visiting today, an especially warm welcome to you If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Bijan, pastor for our church, and really glad to be with you today. The passage that you just heard read is a prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Christians who lived in Ephesus. There was a church there, and Paul, the pastor, is praying for them. This passage is wonderfully rich. It's dense with theological truth. And there's no way that we could unfold all of its richness today in one sermon. But here's what I do want to do, given that it's Easter. I want to look at these verses and show you one great doctrine, one glorious truth that's here. And then spend the rest of our sermon unpacking or unfolding the implications of that doctrine. If it's true, what does it mean for your life? So that's what we're going to do today. On Easter Sunday, we're going to see a great doctrine and the implications that that doctrine has for your life, for our city. So first, let's look at this passage and see what is the great doctrine. Now it's there in verse 19, but to get the full scope, let's start reading in verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. First thing to see, Paul's praying for the church that they would know something. In the Bible, to know something is much more than just having rational awareness. Knowledge in the Bible is much more than information acquisition. Knowledge in the Bible, to, to know something or to know someone, is to have an experience. Knowledge is experiential. It's one thing to know, theoretically, that honey is sweet, it's a whole other thing to know honey's sweet by having its taste land on your tongue. And when Paul says, I want you to know something, he's praying for a lived, felt experience in your life. So what is it that he's praying that you would know, not just as a proposition, but as a force? Well, come with me to verse 19. He says, I want you to know the incomparably great power that is for you if you believe that's what Paul wants you to know God's incomparably great power that is for you on your behalf working for you today if you're a believer if you're a Christian now pardon a little Greek education and vocabulary but we're going to go to school for just a minute the phrase incomparably great power is interesting the word incomparably in Greek it's a hyphenated word Hyperbalo it literally means hyper, supercharged, like hyper kids, right? Running around nonstop, hyper. Ballo is abundance. So supercharged abundance, that's incomparably. Great is the Greek word megathos. It's where we get our word mega. And then power is the Greek word dynamis, where we get our word dynamite. So if you were to translate this literally, what Paul's saying is, I want you to know in your daily felt, lived, experienced, the supercharged, abundant, mega explosive power of God, which is for you today. That's what Paul's praying for the church. compare that to your daily lived experience. I mean, how many of us go through life and we feel like life's kind of dull, kind of ordinary, like it's the same thing every day, nothing new's happening. just kind of blah. And Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, there's something at work for you and inside of you that is a supercharged, abundant, mega explosive power. Do you know that power? Is that power felt in your lived daily experience? We say, well, what does that power look like? What does it feel like? I mean, it sounds amazing, but what does it look like in action? Paul tells us. Paul says there was a moment in history. There was a moment one Sunday morning when the supercharged, abundant, mega explosive power of God was on display for all the cosmos to see. And it's there in verse 19. I want you to know, he says, the incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same. It's the same power as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Friends, begin putting it together. Paul says, I want you to know there's this power at work in your life if you're a Christian. There's a power available to you. And you say, What's this power look like? Where do we see it? Paul says, Jesus Christ died, He was dead. And three days after he died, something happened that has never happened before in human history. He defeated death, never to die again. He went into a tomb and he came out. And he never ever experienced death after that. It was God's power, his superabundant, mega explosive power, that raised Jesus from the dead. And more than that, Paul says, and you can't miss this. In the passage, Paul doesn't just say God's power raised Jesus from the dead, but look, it goes on and says, and it raised him all the way to the throne in the heavenly court in which Jesus now is seated as king over the cosmos in which all things are under his feet. In which he is king has no rival. He has no equal. There is no power that compares to his. Paul says, God's power did that. And the same power that raised Jesus to that place, that raised him and defeated death and brought him to the throne in his heavenly court, that's the power that's at work in your life this morning if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and brought him to his heavenly throne is a power in you this morning. So... What are the implications? If that's the doctrine, what does it mean for your life? What does it mean for our city? Five things. First, it's only good news if it's true. It's only good news if it's true. There are many people in London, and some of you are here today, who relate to the Christian story like you relate to Harry Potter. It's entertaining, It's beautiful, it's very inspiring, but we know it's not really true. You know, it's a story, it's myth, it's made up to entertain and we can get certain values and morals and lessons from it, but we know it's not history. I mean, no one is searching around for an actual Hogwarts. And that's actually how many people relate to Christianity, it's very inspiring. Jesus was this beautiful teacher. He had a lot of things that are good examples for us. But we know he didn't actually come through a virgin birth. We know he didn't really rise from the dead. I mean, who believes that? And a lot of people in our city, that's how they relate to the Christian story. Polly Tonby, she's a columnist for The Guardian, puts it this way, a recent article I read. She says, At one level, I still feel culturally Christian. Deeply imbued with Christianity's myths, paintings, the hymns, the parables. But as vice president of Humanist UK, I celebrate any decline in superstition, any rise in those who look life and death in the eye with no expectation of anything beyond this earth. What she's saying, that's a perspective that many people in our city have. I'm a cultural Christian. I like the festivity, I like the songs, I like the teaching, but I know it didn't happen. I know it's not really true. I just get some inspiration from it. And here's what I wanna challenge you with today. If you share that perspective, just consider that every single person who wrote the New Testament documents presented their material as being historically, Accurate depictions of events that transpired in time and space. The New Testament writers presented the life of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, not as myth, not as fable, but as events that happened in history. If you're interested in the evidence of that, that's not the point of today's sermon, but find me afterwards, or let me just mention briefly a great book to start is Easter Unbelievable by Rebecca McLaughlin. A great place to start if you want to get to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus in history. But here's what I want you to see today, simply. It's one thing to say Christianity is all nonsense. We can't have anything to do with any of it. That's a legitimate intellectual position. But it's intellectually inconsistent to say, well, I like some parts of Christianity, but I don't know that it's actually historical or true because that doesn't do justice to the evidence that's presented in the New Testament. So at least be intellectually honest enough to say, I either have to take all of it or reject all of it, but I can't take some parts and disregard the others. Think about what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 1. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in you. Life is really hard. And I don't need a mythical power. I need a real one. And if the resurrection of Jesus is just myth, then that power that raised him is not real. And it does me no good. But what Paul's saying in Ephesians 1, there's a power that's real and trustworthy because it actually raised Jesus from the dead. So, have you looked at the evidence Do you know Jesus Christ's resurrection not just as myth or fable, but as historical reality? It's only good news if it's true. Second implication, more pastoral, more personal, you can change. The second implication of this great doctrine is that you can change. Some of you, right now in your life, you feel stuck, you feel powerless to resist temptation. You're discouraged by you continually failing in the same way. You look at certain habits or behaviors or patterns in your life and you feel guilt and you feel shame and you feel like you'll always be stuck in them. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. And that means that you, yes, you can change. But here we're not talking about self-help. Self-help is more or less an idea that you have all the resources inside yourself to change, to grow, to do better. Self-help is about self-realization and self-actualization. It's looking inside, tapping into your potential and saying, I can conquer any mountain, I can ford every stream, but you can't. You know that. The gospel's not interested in self-help. The gospel's interested in self-denial, which is to say you don't have the power to change yourself, you can't. But the good news is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, a power from the outside, that's available to you. And that's the power that you can experience change through. My favorite example of this is a guy called Peter. If you know the Christian story, you know Peter was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. These were his closest friends. And they were meant to be the leaders of the church. Now, on the night before Jesus was to be killed on the cross, Peter was talking to Jesus and Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. You're going to act like you don't even know me. And Peter says, no way. These other guys, they might fail you, but not me. I'm Peter. I'm dependable. I'm reliable. I've got your back. You can totally count on me. And Jesus says, no, Peter, tonight, three times, you're going to deny me. And that's what happens. Now, you and I, we fail and we make mistakes in our life. Some of us are very good at making mistakes. But none of us have ever made a mistake or failed as badly as Peter. Because when it mattered most, when the son of God was being on trial for his life, one of his closest friends said, with curses and with swearing, on oath, I don't know the man. Mess profound failure. And that's where Peter was that night. Deep discouragement, a deep sense of failure. And the text says that after Peter became aware of his failure, he went out and he wept bitterly. He was literally convulsing in his grief. What happened? Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And an angelic messenger comes to the disciples They're gathered in an upper room. They're scared. They don't know what's happening. And three days later, an angelic messenger comes to those disciples who were gathered in that upper room. And the messenger says, he's risen. And he says to you disciples and Peter, come and meet me in Galilee. My old pastor used to say, why do you think the angel says, And Peter. I mean, Peter was one of the disciples. So if Jesus says to the disciples, come and meet me, that includes Peter. So why add and Peter? And you know the answer. Because Peter felt like a failure. And he must have thought in that moment, if Jesus wants to see the disciples, that doesn't include me. Because I failed. He doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. I messed up. And so Jesus says, tell all of them, yes, and especially Peter. I wanna see them. So they make their way to Galilee and they see Jesus and Peter and Jesus have a one-on-one. And in that moment, you can almost expect Peter thinking, Jesus is gonna say, you had your chance, buddy, that's it. You failed me, you're a step aside. We're gonna replace you. But do you know what happens? Peter repents. He doesn't qualify his behavior. He doesn't give justification and say, well, it was a really hard day. I was really tired. You know, Here's the context. He says, I failed you. And he repents with genuine, humble, godly sorrow. And do you know what Jesus does? He forgives him. He loves him. And he says, I want you to be the leader in my church. And when you get to the book of Acts, what you see is Peter is not just a Christian in the church. He's the leader of the church. And that's how the gospel works. The biggest failures become the best leaders because you learn how to plunge your failure into God's grace And that's where resurrection happens. You see, the moment where Peter repents, he dies to himself. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't excuse his actions. He says, I'm powerless to change. I have nothing in me that's good. He dies to himself. And in that moment, Jesus says, that's where I can come in and use you because I'm in the business of resurrection. And he takes repentance and death and he brings new life. You can change not because you have the power in yourself, but the moment you come to the end of yourself, the moment you deny yourself, the moment you say, I can't fix this. That's where resurrection power breaks through and Peter shows us, you can change. Third implication of this great doctrine, there's always hope. There's always hope. For some of you, there are things in your life right now that feel totally hopeless. There are situations, there are people that, you've just given up on. For some of you, there are persons in your life that you would love to see come to faith. You'd love to see them become Christian. And you say to yourself, oh, that would be so amazing. And it's never gonna happen. feels too far gone. For others of you right now, there's deep pain because of relationships that have been broken. Maybe they're romantic ones, maybe they're friendships. Some of you are having incredibly hard marriages right now. And you look at those relationships and as painful as it is to experience those fractures and those brokenness, you just can't see a way for reconciliation. You can't see a way for things to be restored. Others of you, whether it's passions or hobbies, maybe dreams, you've kind of given up on them. You've said that was the dreams of a young person, but not me. Those are beyond their time. In other words, you look at your life and there are lots of things that feel totally hopeless. Hopeless. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power at work in your life. Do you know what that means? The 11th hour, when everything else feels hopeless, that's when God loves to work. You see, Jesus wasn't sick. Jesus wasn't injured. He was dead. And usually when a person is dead, that's the end of the story. Except in Jesus' case, it wasn't. And when all hope seemed lost, that's when God did his greatest work. And if the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your life, that means there's always hope. Now hear me, I don't mean to say that everything you hope for is going to unfold exactly the way you hope for it to unfold. That's not always true. But here's what I do know. God always gives his people exactly what they would have asked for if they knew everything that he knows. And if the resurrection power of Jesus is at work in your life, that means you are never without hope. There is no situation, there's no person, there's no relationship, there's no opportunity that is beyond his power to bring life out of death. I don't always know what that's gonna mean in your life, but I know it's true because he rose from the dead. There's always hope. And no matter how far gone a situation seems, No matter how far away that person feels, if you're in Jesus, there's hope. Not because we're wishful thinkers, because of the resurrection. Fourth implication you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You know, the most common command in the whole Bible, the thing that God says to his people more than any other command, is don't be afraid. And I think that's funny because if he had to say it that much, it's like he knew we need to hear it over and over again. That we live in a world that terrifies us. That most of us live our lives with a baseline narrative of fear fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of something terrible happening. We're afraid. And so over and over again, God says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, it's interesting. The day Jesus rose from the dead, that first Easter morning, there were a couple of women who were the first to find Jesus at the tomb, empty. And they walk in, the tomb is empty, there's an angel there, and his angel's like, he's not here, I told you, he just said he wasn't going to be here. And they begin leaving the area of their tomb, and Jesus meets them. And Jesus says, hi. And in that moment, these couple of women, they fall down and I couldn't even imagine the emotion, the fear, the joy, the the overwhelmed, he's alive. And you know what the first thing Jesus says to them after high is? He looks at those women and he says, don't be afraid. And you know, that command, it's repeated all throughout the Bible, but that morning when Jesus said it, it must've felt different. Because Jesus had just walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he came out on the other side. And now this time he looks at these women and he says, it's as if he's saying, you never, ever, ever have to be afraid again. Because I went through the worst and I came out. Don't be afraid. And you know, Paul in Ephesians 1 He shows us why we don't need to be afraid. Not only has Jesus defeated death, but remember what Paul's saying in Ephesians 1? Jesus, as he's been raised from the dead, where is he now? He's seated on his throne in the heavenly court. He's far above, Paul says, all powers. And in Ephesians, the word powers or rulers, it's usually referring to the demonic or the evil rulers and powers. And Paul's saying, right now at this moment, the risen Jesus is on his throne and he's so far above all evil and all power. He says in the text, all things are under his feet. You see, sometimes we move through life and we think of good and evil in a kind of context, contest or a tug of war. Like, okay, good is winning. No, evil is winning. No, good is winning. Evil is winning. We think, what's gonna happen? <laughs> Paul says, the way Jesus relates to evil is the way you relate to an ant. There is no contest. It's just a matter of time until his victory is complete and assured. All things are under his feet. He's the king. He's on his throne. And evil's days are numbered. Some of you say, well, okay, but why is there still so much evil in our world? And there is. We don't have time to get into that today in our sermon. And I'll also tell you, if I did have time, you wouldn't be satisfied with the answer because there is no satisfying answer. I can't explain to you why, even though Jesus is king, there's still evil in our world. But here's what I can say. If he rose from the dead, then evil's days are numbered and the world is coming that we long for in which evil is gone forever. Where justice covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, where everything sad is untrue, where all tears are wiped away. And we live in a world filled with love forever. If Jesus rose from the dead, that's what's coming. And so here's the question. What are you afraid of today? What are you afraid of? And is what you're afraid of any match for a king who defeated death and sits on his throne and who promises that in 10,000 years, you are gonna be safe and there's gonna be a feast? Is there any fear that can't ultimately be healed by that truth? Now I'll be the first to say, I'm still gonna have fear in my life. But Jesus in his resurrected state, he comes to meet me and says, Bishan, you don't really need to be afraid because I went through the valley of the shadow of death. This is why George Herbert, who was an old poet, once said in one of his poems, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has turned him into a gardener. You don't have to be afraid. And you know what that truth does? If you believe that the best is yet to come, if you believe that Jesus is actually the king and everything is unfolding according to his perfect purpose and plan, that he's going to win, he's actually already won, and it's just a matter of time. If you believe that, you're gonna go through all kinds of hard stuff in your life. And you know, we're a young-ish church. For many of you, the hardest things that you're ever gonna face are still to come. You need hope. And this hope, the resurrected reigning Jesus, far above all powers, if you know that, if you believe that, if you hide that in your heart, it's hope from the future flooding into your present. And it gives you the ability to face anything that comes your way. In The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, the book, not the movie, there's a part where Sam Gamgee, as you may know, Sam and his friend Frodo are trying to save the world, and there's a part where they're walking in this land called Mordor. It's a land of shadow. It's the land of darkness. It's, it's the death shadow, and they need to go through this incredibly hard place in order to save the world, to save their friends, and they're so tired. They're so weary. They're so discouraged. They want to give up, and so one night, they lay down. They're almost passed out, and Sam looks up. And in this land of deep darkness, he sees a single, bright, beautiful shining star. And in that moment, as he looks up and he sees that star, it says he's filled with hope. And he realized something. He realized that in the end, the shadow was only a small and a passing thing. And there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. What's that? Jesus is our resurrected, bright, shining star. And whatever darkness you go through, if you see him on his throne, if you see him having defeated death, that can pierce into your darkness and give you courage to go through the next day and the one after that. You don't need to be afraid. Fifth implication, be in the church, be in the church. It's interesting that in verses 20, 21, 22, Paul's in the cosmos. You notice that. He's talking about the lordship of Jesus over everything. All things are under his feet. He's the king in the heavenly court. And you almost want Paul to stop there. You're like, how does it get any better than that? But look at what he does in verse 22 and 23. He starts talking about the church. Now, for many of us, our experience with the church is, eh, maybe even really hard. And it's amazing. It's utterly amazing that Paul, as he's praying for God's people to know God's power, this explosive, super abundant mega power, he says, this power is in the cosmos, but it's revealed in the church. Jesus is the head of the church and his body is the place, the church is the place where God's purposes in the world are unfolding. So the question as we wrap up our sermon today, an implication of this great doctrine is, are you part of a church? I don't mean, do you attend a church occasionally? I mean, are you in the church? Are you deeply embedded in a community of faith that are following Jesus and making him known in their city? Because Jesus raised and risen is the head of his church. And this is where his power is revealed. This is where his power is on display. So if we're serious about knowing that power, living in that power, we're gonna be serious about being in Jesus' body, in his church. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Easter Sunday. We thank you for Jesus, risen, reigning, And we thank you that because he is, we can change. We don't have to be afraid. There's hope. And that you've gathered a people around yourself in which your purposes are unfolding. So now as we come to this time of response, please pour out your spirit. Help us to experience your power today. Where we need healing, bring healing. Where we need challenge and conviction, we pray for it where we need a sense of community to heal our loneliness, we pray for that. Lord, on this Easter Sunday, may we know in our experience the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.